time to thrive. Welcome to the Thrivology Podcast with Dr. Lee Bauckham. Join us as we explore ways that you can thrive in your life, regardless of what life throws at you. It's your life. Time to live it. We all know that loss is an inevitable part of life. There's no way you can avoid it. There are going to be losses. There are going to be deaths in all of our lives. And as much as we'd like to avoid that and even deny that that happens, when we're faced with it, we have to do something. Today, my guest is Sarah Nannan. Sarah is an empowerment coach, a mindfulness expert, and a speaker. And she's also the author of a best-selling book titled Grief Unveiled, A Widow's Guide to Navigating Your Journey in Life After Loss. Her book is based on her own experience as a widowed military spouse who had four young children at that moment. And what she realized is the way we process grief in our culture is not particularly helpful. In fact, she found that a lot of the commonly accepted ways of dealing with grief and loss only kept her stuck. And it wasn't until she realized that she had to be a renegade and how she was processing grief and understanding it, did she come out on the other end. Not only did she come out on the other end with a great life, but she also took that experience and brings it to others in the midst of loss. So whether you're trying to work through a loss or if you want to be ready for dealing with that loss, listen in as I have a chance of talking with Sarah about grief and her renegade approach to dealing with it. Sarah, thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited to be talking about this because this, what we're talking about today is something that touches every single person. No way to avoid this. And yet, it's one of those topics that people would rather avoid. And not only that, but there's a lot of misinformation that we want to delve in today. So, now, Sarah, again, thanks for being here. Tell us a little bit about how you got to this place. And uh, so, basically, kind of the story of, of getting to here. Thanks, Lee, for having me on your show. It's a pleasure. Um, it's always interesting to look back at the way all the dots connected to lead me to this place I never actually intended to wind up. Um, so we'll go back to 2014. I was living on a military base in Japan with my family. My husband was in the military. He was a Marine Corps fighter pilot. and I had three kids under the age of five and a newborn to make that an even number of four. And um, we were going about our business one sunny Sunday while my husband was away on a training mission in the States when a knock came on the door, like you see in the movies. And I opened the door to find some dear friends who were the commanding officers of the squadron in their finest uniforms looking at me. And before they told me anything, I knew what they were there to share and found out that day that my husband had crashed in an accident in Nevada. And I was now declared a widow with four young children under my belt living overseas. And that was sort of that moment where the world around me spiraled out of control. I think that would be defined as my rock bottom moment when the knees crashed to the ground in disbelief and saw this incredible life we had been creating together, a 14-year-long love story we had been growing together come crumbling down around me. And I was just lost in this fog of utter disbelief, dismay. And frankly, I was really, really um, not looking forward to the rest of my life. I envisioned this scraped together second best kind of crappy reality where I was a single mom trying to do my best to keep these four kids from being damaged by this, of course, traumatic experience themselves. And, um, you know, the enormity of the logistics of life that ensued was internationally relocating back to Chicago area where my family lives with these four kids. You know, I was on an airplane five days after I found out my husband died flying over the ocean. It was borderline insanity, but I had a lot of helping hands and support along the way and quickly found that what my clients all share with me now, it's pretty universal, is that when we experience some sort of pivotal life-changing traumatic transition in the way things are, there's a tremendous amount of work that has to happen to rebuild even the most basic semblance of normalcy. So the first year after my husband died was really about creating a life again from what felt like scraps. It was finding a house and finding a car because we had lived overseas. So I came back to the States with nothing and 
waiting for our shipment to come across the ocean and the military shipment and finding pediatricians and baseball teams, the normal life things that felt so overwhelming. And by the end of that year, I realized that I had a choice. And the choice was either to keep doing the same thing or find something that would change this daily grind of just hustling and trying to fake it till I make it and trying to reassure myself and everybody else that we were going to be fine, but on the inside, not really believing it. And so I, I started to engage with the world around me in, um, from a lens of curiosity and perhaps uh, misguided hope. I didn't know what I was hoping for. I just hoped that I would feel less terrible than I felt in the throes of grief. It seems almost an impossible thing. I think people can relate to that. The idea of things being better seems pretty ridiculous in those moments. But what changed was I started to slow down and pay attention to myself instead of trying to do all the things I thought I should be doing. And I started to treat the sense of should as a giant red flag in my path. So any time I encountered that within myself, I would stop and reevaluate and do my best to make a decision that felt true for myself and the best choice for my family in that moment, while also reserving the right to change my mind along the way as I evolved and changed. And what that allowed me to do was really challenge a lot of cultural norms around not just grief and widowhood and what those words mean, but also my emotions, my internal landscape, and of course, the rules of motherhood as I saw them as well. And all of that really accumulated into this life-changing evolution of self. Um, a year after that, I started a yoga teacher training, which provided this whole new landscape for introspection and connection to myself from this really incredible embodiment practice. And I realized that while I was intellectually doing pretty okay, I was still internally, emotionally, and on a psychic level, um, pretty scarred. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have a landscape to engage with that because in the world of grief, in today's modern mental health area, you're either okay or you're not okay. And once you're deemed okay, there's really no support for you. And the support that I kept finding and encountering was all about survival skills and coping strategies and stress management techniques. And by this time, I was a yoga teacher. And I thought, you know, friends, I could probably teach these workshops. So at one point, I went to um, an incredible, beautiful, loving event that was put together for survivors of military. Um, personnel who had died. And one of the volunteers asked me how the event was going for me. And I, in my best attempt at being loving, said, thank you for this. And also, I'd really like to request that next year, maybe there's an inspirational speaking room from somebody who has walked this journey and figured out a way to be happy in life again. And until that happens, I'm probably not going to come back. And that was the moment where when I heard myself say that out loudly, I realized that I was seeking something that really didn't exist in the mainstream culture and went on this deeper quest to find resources that felt like inspiration and transformation and even hope where people actually believed in my capacity to heal instead of constantly seeing me as permanently damaged in my status as a widow. And I found some really amazing resources that really, really changed my sense of self and the way that I engage with the world around me. And I looked up one day and thought, I love my life. And I never in a million years, the day they told my, my husband had died, would ever have believed anybody if they told me that was possible. But now that I'm here and it feels incredibly true in every area of my life, I need to tell people that this is possible. And so I took my yoga teacher training and my professional life coach training and blended these into this incredible program that I now use to help other people who are in the midst of really painful life transitions to help find stable ground under their feet and clarity and confidence for the way forward. You know, to go back all the way in that story, I, I'm assuming that in military world, I mean, you, you obviously know that there is a risk factor but you probably didn't imagine that risk factor just in a training uh, period, you know, not uh, sending somebody off to the front line, but sending your husband off to a, a training somewhere mm -hmm. particularly safer probably than you would imagine. And I imagine that that um, while there's always that possibility floating in, that that wasn't uh, really the expectation that there was a real risk to that. 
Absolutely. And I think one of the unique things about military families and families of anybody who's on the front lines of first response to crisis and war and devastating things that happen in the world is that we we acknowledge and agree to that risk. And then we very quickly compartmentalize it and put mm-hmm. it way in the back of the closet. Because if we keep it too close to the front of our mind, it almost becomes impossible to function yeah. for all of us. And yeah. so you're right, though. In that moment, I was certainly less on guard and less concerned about his well-being. He was in the United States at a, as my sister-in-law calls it, at a training camp. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, it definitely came as a shock when they came to the door that day. Yeah, and, and, and you're right. I mean, I, I don't know that there is any way to less make any a, a loss a shock or any less a loss. And um, you know, that, I think it, it's interesting. Uh, so when I was a child, my father was working on um, his demon, and his project was on death and dying. Um, so years ago, and one of the big books then was the denial of death. And that hasn't changed, you know, in all these years, that still hasn't changed. We still uh, act and try to keep it at distance. And yet, um, that's one of the unavoidables as I started off. You know, we're all going to be faced with this point. It's just when it comes and how it comes. And I think what your uh, point is that somehow part of what's happened is we've made it the exception and therefore uh, the damage, you know, instead of how is this really a part of all of our lives and how we learn to face it, not necessarily at your age or with your, um, your, the kids that young and all the other factors, but there is an unavoidability to loss and there is an unavoidability to death, which is why it's important for us to figure out. I remember um, in my college, um, I took a death and dying course. And one of the uh, things the professor said is the grief process is the process of reweaving the torn fragments of your life, the torn fabric of your life. Uh, and I, I watch how we act as if there's still the tear, right? The, the, I mean, you, we're still acting. And what you're trying to say is that there is not just the coping, but um, the thriving that's past that. So let's Definitely. T- it's let's- really interesting, that whole concept of the denial of death. I love mm-hmm. that you went there. And I think it's fascinating that humans are so brilliant and we've done so many incredible things and yet we're so committed to arguing with the reality that we will all of us at mm-hmm. some point die yeah. and and you're right there was this strange exceptional nature of what happened because i heard from everyone i knew that i was too young to be a widow and he was too young to die and i even in my grief i thought that's really absurd because we're all mortal and that will inevitably happen to all of us and it could easily and I think it often does become this um, informing our fear about that happening and so we we really attach to our life and the lives of our beloveds and what it taught me was really the importance of living present tense because I was only guaranteed today and the people that I loved were only guaranteed today and certainly the idea that you shared so beautifully about reweaving the torn fragments of life. That's such an amazing way to say it. And it really is this excruciating opportunity to look at the totality of your life and everything you have agreed to and everything you've co-created with your eyes wide open and sort of reevaluating what's important, what's your priority. And I find that with myself and my clients, it's so often that we become incredibly averse to drama and we're not interested and we have no desire to participate in petty conversations or to give energy to things that really we don't value anymore. And I love that piece of grief alongside, of course, the acknowledgement of the deep pain and the really, really important process that's happening along the way. Yeah. yeah. And it just strikes me that one of the things though, that is often the case in grief is that um, it's a chance for the community to surround you. And, and for you to be, you know, to find your support in community, but part of your community, the military family community, you were um, pulled out of within days of that happening. Yeah. Um, and is there, do you think there's some lesson in that um, on how sometimes we do grief with um, the impact of community and stripping people of community? I'm really grateful you asked that question. I think there's a couple really important strings we can pull from that. And one is the 
immense immediacy of the support that I received as a result of community and not because I was living on base in Japan and not because I was a part of a thing that was supposed to take care of me, but the fact that there were about eight women who I had really deep personal relationships with that I had cultivated over our time together. And those eight women knew me at the level that they were able to show up with me in really profound, powerful ways. And they were so willing to give my children baths at night and take them to the park and keep the world turning for them so that I could turn inward. And some of them just held quiet vigil and sat near me, holding my newborn so that I could rest or so that I could talk when I needed to talk. And that was really incredible. Um, But I think something that we don't really recognize as a culture is also the accidental damaging impacts of well-meaning community. And that's probably another renegade idea that I have around this because we expect that everyone should show up and everyone should bring a casserole. Maybe that's my Midwest uh, accent sneaking out about the casserole thing, but there's this idea that everyone should show up in droves and what frankly so many people need in the heat of grief, the immediacy of that really intimate raw landscape isn't a thousand people gathered around them. They're not ready for that level of community yet. And what's sort of backwards in our culture is that we show up in droves in the first days, the first weeks, up until the funeral, and then we all go away. Yeah. And yeah. it's sort of opposite of what we actually need, which is a few really close, intimate friends and family who are capable of being with us and knowing intuitively who we are and how we operate and what we need in the first days and weeks. And then we need our community to show up because that's when we start to reemerge from the haze of grief and we start to re-enter life in this new normal. And we need to know that we still have that community there. And I think that's, um, it's a very universal challenge that I continue to encounter with my clients. Now, the other question you asked me about was being removed from that. And that certainly presented a challenge being taken from this community that I had invested in for two years and relocating to, well, maybe it was my hometown. It didn't feel like home. Mm. And that was definitely um, a challenge that I didn't foresee. And I was really grateful for the magic of the internet, to be frank, because I could reach out to very easily and connect with my dearest friends who weren't geographically present. But I was also very touched by the fact that two of my best friends came to my side and one of them stayed for several weeks and they were willing to leave their families behind for a moment and step out of time that keeps on going to just sit beside me in the timelessness of that really raw period of my life. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, a couple of things that um, uh, one of my pastoral care professors talked about the importance of after the phone stops ringing, mm-hmm. you know, that that's the time uh, when the grief is so deep and there's often nobody with you. Uh, but it's interesting. You point to the fact that we didn't talk about, before the phone stops ringing, the need to find some way of um, not being overwhelmed. That I've, mm-hmm. I've watched plenty of people who have suffered a loss be completely exhausted uh, to the yeah. point of getting sick. Um, and they're already already the immune system, and that's one of the things we'll be talking about. I know in the biology, the immune system's already in trouble with mm-hmm. the impact, and then to be constantly barraged with well-meaning people uh, can be an existing thing or, or uh, exhausting thing, and then. Mm-hmm all of a sudden the phone stops ringing and what do you do right. after that? Um, that that's a powerful piece. Um, the other thing that you just reminded me of, I remember this moment, I was a small, pretty young when my, like I was 12 when my grandfather died. And I remember this moment when we were driving to the graveside from the church and I looked out the window and realized that the world was just going on its way, you know, it does, for me, it yeah, strangely. And which is mm-hmm. there, there's the, the place where you talked about the timelessness of that, you know, that yeah. you're, everything's in slow motion and everything is feeling like it's never going to pass. And yet time is passing and other people are moving on and, and going through life. And there is that interesting place um, where it's, a painful time, but almost a sacred time to figure mm-hmm. out, you know, what, what now, uh, how do you reweave? And then to notice that the world is still out there somewhere, um, that they're, that both of those pieces are true at the same time. Definitely. I think that's a really, really important perspective to remind people of not just the people in pain, but also the people on the outside sort of looking in at 
wondering how can we help? How can we be of service? And speaking to that idea of the exhaustion of the immediacy is this interesting thing that we I alluded to earlier, the should. And mm-hmm. how do we reevaluate how we as the person in deep grief respond to these really, really beautiful blessings of community support? Yeah. And so it invites immediately this really important conversation of boundaries. And I was able to do this thankfully because I used to be a birth doula and I used to teach new parents how to um, manage the really well-meaning relatives and friends who all wanted to come see the baby. And a couple of things I told them was that um, anytime someone comes by for a visit, whether you're dressed or not dressed, that the new mother should put her bathrobe on over top of whatever she's wearing. So that there was this visual reminder to the person visiting who's cooing and swooning all over this new baby. But there's also a really, really exhausted postpartum mother and a birth partner, hopefully, if she's lucky, that is right there in the midst of this really, really intense transition in life. Mm. And to invite that person to stop by briefly and not overstay their welcome and perhaps use their helping hands to take the trash out on their way out the door. Yeah. Yeah, So that's interesting because I I think back on cultures where um, for a period after a death would wear dark clothes and, you know, maybe even put some ashes on them or something that was a reminder to themselves that something had changed, Mm -hmm. but probably was also a place of boundaries for other people to remember, you know, you don't have to be dressed up and looking your best right right after a loss. And that's one of those shoulds that can keep you stuck. So that's very interesting. You bring that up. Let's talk a little about the biology of this. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to get back to the boundaries, but to understand why that's so important, it might be important to understand the impact of -hmm. what's going on. Sure. So I think we oversimplify the impact of grief. And as a culture, we understand it to be this really profound emotional and perhaps mental experience. And what we take for granted is that it's actually a very traumatizing experience. And while we often reserve the word trauma for surviving a terrorist attack or sexual assault, there is inherently trauma anytime we experience something that assaults or violates our essential self and our identity in the world. And certainly having your spouse or someone you love deeply die is an assault on your identity because there's immediately this question of who am I without them and what will become of me because of that loss. And as much as it's about missing them and longing for them, there is this internal existential fear of who will love me now, who will be my partner now, who will keep me safe in the world now. And it's not super glamorous to talk about, but if we look at the deep psychological impact of loss, that's what's actually going on underneath what's what we're capable of articulating in our sometimes limited language when it comes to grief and loss. Mm. And so when we're looking at this as trauma, grief is really a lived active trauma state. And the brain fog and the fatigue and the dissociative behaviors and the dissociative thought processes and this seemingly separateness, like you alluded to earlier, the time stops for us in a way that it doesn't stop for the people around us. And all of that seems very otherworldly. And that is, by definition, a part of the symptoms of a traumatic, a trauma response to something that we experience. And so I think we have to really lean into acknowledging that, not to make us more damaged, because I think there's such a fear when people experience grief that they're inherently damaged and that they're one wrong move away from going over the edge of the cliff to the dark side. And so we do this very ritualistic hustle, I call it the grief hustle, to try and bring ourselves back to the land of life. And that hustle is really informed by the shoulds we talked about, the lack of boundaries, the well-meaning people. But the hustle is also about, if I don't show up to this, they'll stop inviting me. If I show up and I'm too sad, they'll stop inviting me. So we override our true nature and the internal experiences of grief and put on a happy face and show up and force ourselves to do all of these things that feel out of alignment with what our truth is on the inside. And that just doubles down on what's happening in the trauma response. And we, you asked about the biology of it. So I think it's important to get to what the core of what's actually happening, right? That impacts every part of ourselves. And we'll start with the nervous system and we'll just do a, a quick overview, right? We have 
parasympathetic nervous system and a nervous system. And if you're glazing over right now thinking about your anatomy class in high school, stay with me. I like to put this in really simple terms, right? One is about get away from the danger. And one is about feeling really, really good in life, right? The parasympathetic the parasympathetic nervous system is all about ease and homeostasis and equilibrium. That's where you feel really good on a really good day. And the sympathetic nervous system says, we got to run, we got to fight, or we got to play dead because nothing else is going to help us here. And those immediate, like those are, those are innate responses that you can't intellectually command otherwise. And even though you might intellectually feel like you're doing okay, this is all happening in the background of your mental experience. And it changes all of the systems, hormones, digestion, even which parts of your brain are online and available for decision-making. And so we can call it grief fog or widow brain. We kind of call that like new mommy brain too. We have lots of like cute cartoonized words to talk about these things like, oh, that's a cute symptom. It'll go away. But what we don't realize is that we're making choices from the most primal parts of our brain. That is not being informed by our intellect, our our frontal cortex that's capable of elegant solutions to life's challenges. It's being informed by the lizard brain in the back of our skull that really just wants to make sure we stay alive. And I'm positive your listeners can see how that wouldn't necessarily be informing our most discerning and perhaps the best choices on behalf of our future self, just making it through the day, right? And we've all heard that idea of fake it till you make it. And I think that's such an easy and concise way to look at what we're being taught as a culture about how to cope and survive in the aftermath of grief. And I think we've got to really take back that period of life, just like we're working to do that for the mothers in the postpartum period and say, this is about moving beyond surviving, but there's some things we have to pay attention to here in order to do that. Yes, I think so many times people are um, not aware that they've made that shift, you know, after a loss, they they think that they are fully functioning. And uh, so they have that battle where they already are feeling like they're doing everything. And so many times I've talked with people to remind them that there are going to be things they're not going to remember. They're not going to remember who's around them. They're not going to remember decisions that are made. And that's part of where our brain is being hijacked. Um, And uh, that uh, fight flight survival mode has kicked in so much that it it keeps the other pieces at bay. And often it's after the fact that people become aware of that. So um, I think you're right that that the kind of the, the pressure of culture to be okay is one you need to know on the front side of a loss, mm-hmm. not in the midst of it, because in the midst of it, you're trying to be okay. You know, you, and, and you probably even can think that, that, that you're operational, when you really um, have lost some of that decision making, so that's the the nervous, the parasympathetic, and the sympathetic that are uh, um, well. The really the parasympathetic has been hijacked by the sympathetic. Mm-hmm. So that's started to affect all the other things, and I think you you kind of highlighted. But basically, um, if you think about what would happen for a body to get ready for a fight, that's what's mm-hmm. happening. You know, right. stop digesting food. Uh, don't take any more food in and uh, protect the vital organs. Our brain doesn't know the difference between trauma and trauma is trauma. So how does that, um, how does that shift? What, what are the, the places where that begins to shift naturally? And how can we not be trying to, to fake the shift, but how can we be doing what we can to, uh, so, let me say, I've said to many people over time that grief is not something you can shortcut, but you can sure stretch it out. You, know, you, can, mm. you can make it be extended, but you're not going to get through it any faster than you get through it. Yeah. What are some ways that we can make sure we're actually processing that biologically um, sure. and psychologically? So I think on that same biological note, we need to mention the fact that the other thing that happens is your, your awareness is acutely focused on the threat. Hmm. And I think the threat is not so much the fact that someone died, but the threat is everyday choices and the world that's happening all around you. And you sort of, it seems like we gloss over real life and we're so acutely focused on three things, guilt, shame, and fear of judgment. That is such a focus of our every decision-making process because we're trying to shore up our security and our safety in our community with this new state of being. So the reason I bring that up in response to your question about how do we initiate the shift is 
we have to acknowledge that what we're currently doing is actually perpetuating the problem and not initiating the shift. Mm. This idea of hustling and fake it till you make it and show up even though you don't want to and start working out and the more you sweat, the better it'll work. All of these stories that we're being told about what we should be doing, red flag right there, right? Should Mm -hmm. be doing, Mm -hmm. is actually creating a long-term new normal that is perpetuating the problem. Because we're trying to resist and disconnect from our innate experience of grief with all of these things we're doing, getting a new dog, getting a new job, showing up to the gym every day at 6 a.m. and sweating until you can't even walk anymore because endorphins, they said it would help. These things are actually putting our physical self into a deeper activated trauma state. They're depleting our systems. They're blasting our adrenals at an even deeper level than we already were naturally from the grief. And so the shift is not so much about doing as giving up the doing. And it's a it's a total mind warp, right? When it's like the solution to this is learning how to be in stillness. That seems so counterintuitive. But what we have to do is create enough stillness in our lives that our physiology can naturally bring itself back into a state of equilibrium. And until we allow and encourage and support our physiology to come back into that state of homeostasis where we shift out of the sympathetic response and into the parasympathetic, we're not actually able to access ourselves at that deep emotional and mental level that is required so often in cognitive behavioral therapy, for example. Mm. We're trying to do all of this deep work. And yet, if we're in an activated trauma state as a result of our biology, we're not actually going to be able to do anything other than intellectually noodle around the things that we want to be capable of, but we can't get to because our body doesn't know we're safe where we are yet. And so the shift really begins in a couple of things. And I, I love to talk about, of course, yoga, although I know there's an adverse reaction often to that yoga word because we have this culture where people are required to wear tiny little pants and put their feet in places they shouldn't naturally reach. And so I sort of would invite you to recalibrate with me your concept of yoga. Yoga is so much more than making strange shapes with your arms and legs. And instead, it becomes this very intentional lifestyle choice where you move your body through space and time in a different way. And you're very present in your mind. And so the practice becomes this, while it's asana and moving and breathing, it becomes this metaphor for how do I live in my daily life? And if I'm able to be in this posture with my leg muscles burning and my, my arms extended, and I can stand here and be aware of this physical discomfort this work, this effort that's happening in my body, but I can also breathe and allow my physical self to self-regulate and be at equilibrium at the same time. There's this really interesting thing that happens that we start to be able to do that when we're in bad traffic also, or when we're having a really triggered moment about the unknowns of our future. And so the practice of yoga, whether it's asana or it's breathing or it's super hard and sweaty or slow and restorative, it's really this opportunity to give our physical self and our mental self a really important connection to create a new perception of what's happening in us and around us and bring us present in real time so that we have the capacity of our full brain online to make choices on behalf of our future self instead of reacting from our primal brain that's just about defensiveness and triaging what feels like chaos in our life. Hmm. So can I back up just for a second? Because I, I, th- I think um, there is a, a play. I could see somebody saying, okay, yoga. I'll, and then they, they make that their grief hustle. You know, right. they, and, and so they jump into that. And, and I know one of the things that I've heard repeatedly, and you kind of alluded to it in your own story, that there's this fear of going off the dark cliff, you know, falling in the dark hole. And sometimes when I've talked with people about going into the grief rather than, you know, presenting the happy face and and all that, what they've said is, if I go into that place, I don't think I'll I'll ever come out. out. (laughs) If I, if I take to the bed, if whatever it is that is in their mind, 
I'm never going to emerge from this. Um, mm-hmm. You emerged from it. Mm-hmm. What? Tell us a little bit about what that felt like to be, you know, to feel like there's this dark edge that if yeah. you, if you even acknowledged, you might get sucked into. What was that like, and how did you move through it? Uh, and obviously, yoga was one of the places it helped you. Right. But what? What else? Um, it's not the only answer. Yeah. So what? Well, and and it also is a more about being willing to approach the dark place, you know, being willing to step into it. That's right. That's acknowledging that there is that dark edge is I think the very first step, like most things, and then making the decision to step into it intentionally was actually what began to change everything. Now I don't advise anybody to do that unassisted, unescorted or without a guide. So we need our community and we need not just our friends and family who are really well-meaning but don't actually understand what we're dealing with. We also need professional support. And that can look like a million different things. It can be a coach. It can be a pastor. It can be a therapist. There are many Sherpas and guides who are ready and able to walk that journey with you. But going into it instead of avoiding it, I believe is the only way we can come out on the other side. Otherwise, we spend our entire life acknowledging and being terrified of and going out of our way to stay away from it. And the way that I think about it is, and this is how I teach my clients on day one, we've all played in a pool or a lake with a ball probably at some point in our lives. And when you try to press a volleyball underwater, it takes a lot of focus and a lot of effort and a lot of work. And inevitably inevitably that dang thing is going to pop up and hit us in the face and go somewhere else. And then we've got to chase it down and start the process over. To me, that's exactly what it feels like to be grieving, to be in deep pain, and also faking it till we make it on the outside. We're spending all of our time and focus and energy on harnessing and compartmentalizing and keeping suppressed the pain that we're feeling, that we don't even know how to feel fully. It's so overwhelming, and so we, uh, we push it down. Mm. The minute I let go of the volleyball, and it just floated around. It just floated around. And that gave me the opportunity to be curious about it. And I really, truly believe that another piece of it, along with this cultivating of the stillness of the physical self so that we can connect with the internal landscape of ourselves, is we've got to stop trying to suppress the painful experience and instead become very tenderly curious about it. Because And I know this sounds like a terrible idea, so stay with me. We've got to do this because this is where the information about our healing resides. What we don't understand is that we're not only feeling the pain of the loss, and this can be a universal concept. It doesn't have to be about widows or widowers. We've all experienced grief. We've all experienced a painful transition, and we know what it feels like to suppress that pain. When we begin to be curious about it, what we're actually being given is an all-access pass to everything within us that is a wound. It's not just about the lost job or the husband who passed. It's about all of the information we've been collecting up since the very first breath, maybe even before, there's lots of science around that now, that's informing us about how we can be safe, worthy, and lovable in the world. And when those wounds are brought to the surface all at the same time, it can be excruciating, but it can also be an invitation. Because we've got access to all of that, we can also heal it. And so what I find very quickly with my clients who come to me with an acute loss, and again, this is all over the map, all kinds of things. We don't talk much about that acute loss. We talk about the surrounding circumstances and the fears of the non-existent future. And also trying to make sense of what happened in the past. So we quickly cross over from coaching and forward growth into this realm of trauma and inquiry and understanding where's the fear coming from? Where's the pain coming from? What are the raw nerve endings within my heart that are so, so activated right now? And by looking at those with tender curiosity one by one by one, we create this entire new perception of reality in the world around us, but also an entirely new sense of self. And that dark journey with a guide by your side and support around you 
is how we come to the other side of that rock bottom, that dark place. And we almost by surprise look up one day and see that the sun is still shining. And we look up and we see life happening all around us. I remember the day that this happened for me. It was as though I was on my hands and knees in the rubble of my life. And something caught my eye and I looked up and realized, I'm still here and all of this is still happening. And I can either stay here on my hands and knees or I can stand up and I can get curious and I can begin slowly to re-engage with this new perspective about the world and about myself and see what becomes of this chapter of my life. Oh, that's such so many good things in there. Um, you know, I, I do think that um, the idea of grief as a channel to healing is so powerful. I'm always uh, interested when I'm at a funeral or something like that of how many conversations are about other funerals and other deaths and other griefs to let me know that when that's happened, everybody is recentered on their own unfinished grief pieces. And I'm not sure you ever really finish them, but there are places where they can continue to heal. Which brings me to that other place of awareness that what you're talking about is the fact that we do have the capacity of healing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of times we um, act as if we're something mechanical. You know, something mechanical breaks, you, you either have to replace it or, you know, have a spare part rather than being organic. That when I cut my arm, it heals. I might have a scar, I might have a mark from it, but yeah. it, it heals over and it's, we're much more organic even in the grief than we are otherwise. Um, and I, just to highlight, you're uh, talking about a guide uh, reminds me that how important it is to make sure that your, your guide is someone who's not invested in you simply being happy again. You know, the, mm-hmm. Because that's the problem. Family just wants you to feel better. And so they're not so concerned about do we work through this as much as can we make you happy as soon as possible? And, uh, or and maybe even just not sad or not we sad. That's probably, happy. we just need you to be not so sad. Yeah. Yeah. And, and back to who the old person we used to know. And, and mm-hmm. at that point you're a new person um, with new understandings and that there are places. I loved your comment about places to find how to be safe and worthy and lovable in the world that, that mm-hmm. that's, that's what feels at risk, and that's what we have to gain from uh, working through the trauma. So just uh, let's just quickly talk about uh, there's yoga. What other ways can people continue to process? And then I know you have uh, something else for people. So mm-hmm. let's just highlight a couple of other things that people might move towards sure. and then talk about how you might be helpful. So one of the first things that I really cultivate for my clients, and I often do this in a group setting, is the ability to be vulnerable as a superpower Mm. in lieu of a weakness. And we practice that by working to own our story in a group setting. I think storytelling has been a really powerful tool throughout all of time for humans to make sense of their experiences and help integrate that into reality. And what's interesting is when I speak to people for the first time, I ask them straight out of the bat to tell me their story, whatever version of it feels appropriate. I ask for the Cliff Notes version because they could probably talk for days. But They say when they're done, that's the first time I've ever been able to say my story in completion without having to filter it for someone else's consumption. I'm always so concerned about how other people will receive it and judge me or take pity on me. And I can't stomach that again. So I usually gloss over what happened and try to get to a different conversation. And so part of what we must do, and this is the fascinating work of the human mind, is we have to own our story. And we can't intellectually decide to do that. But what happens is we begin to practice telling it with good emotional boundaries intact and very aware of the audience and whether or not they've earned the right to hear the full story. Is that we begin to own it ourselves. And it's sort of that decision to let the volleyball roam freely around the surface of the water instead of trying to keep it suppressed. There's so much shame and there's so much stigma around loss. Somehow my worth was immediately damaged and lowered. My value in the world in my own psyche was immediately 
gone the moment my husband died. And this is a very archaic, long-standing, almost traditional thing that happens to widows. But I think anybody who's experienced any sort of massive life transition can relate to that moment of knowing that somehow your value in the world was decreased because of this. Hmm. Now, I don't actually believe that's true, but that was very much my sensed experience of it. And part of owning our story is reclaiming our worth and saying, yes, this happened to me and this doesn't define me. This is a piece of who I am. And this is actually a powerful bit of information about who I'm becoming because this is going to inevitably infuse these lessons into my new life perspective on the other side. Hmm. Uh, so important. To, you talked about being able to tell your story, but so important, the parameters you put on that of making sure that someone has earned the right to have that and that they can contain it, um, yeah. that you're not having to um, create a narrative for the audience. Um, all of those are so important and, and have to be held together. It's possible to share in the wrong place yeah. and possible to withhold in the right place. Absolutely. Absolutely. Another thing that we can really do, and this almost seems way too simple to even be worth your while, because I said when, when I say yoga, people sometimes glaze over and say, yeah, 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 what else do you have? I um, am amazed at the impact that two minutes of slow breathing when you start your day can have on your entire lived experience. And this is, again, this is one of the very first things I teach anyone who works with me is this really slow, deep breathing practice. I say, get up, go to the bathroom, come straight back to bed, turn on as few lights as possible and sit or lay in stillness for two minutes and breathe slowly and deeply. Because when you start your day there, you're starting from equilibrium. Mm -hmm. Your nervous system is starting at fully functional. Your brain is fully online. You've got your best self going into the day. And what I realized was for so long after my husband died, I started every day in immediate fight or flight. I woke up with a pounding heart and I woke up with dread and I woke up with this incredible fear of what was going to happen to me that day. And when I started breathing upon waking, everything changed. Now, it doesn't change the circumstances of what you're dealing with. You still have the hard work of rebuilding your life and tending to your decisions and taking care of your responsibilities. But I was more available for that and capable to do that because I was fully present and my physical self wasn't in a state of alarm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, You don't change the circumstances, but you change the state of yourself in the mm -hmm. circumstances. And that's so important. We, I've talked about this. Uh, so you're saying something simple like that. It's just reinforcing something that I've been saying for a long time. Precisely. It, it's interesting that it, it's, so it's so much more complex than saying, well, just breathe. Because when we talk about sympathetic and parasympathetic, you know, sympathetic is something we we can, breathing happens automatically. I don't have to think about it. I've been right. standing here talking for you for a while and haven't thought a thing about my breathing until you started talking about breathing. And suddenly I can decide how I'm going to breathe and you can mm -hmm. do the same. And, uh, and it's a thing that happens automatically that we can suddenly take control. And there are, are not many things in our human body that we can do that, which means sure. that it's clearly wired in in very deep ways to our, our state and our presence. So, And what uh, happens when we do that is we actually accidentally are able to influence other parts of us, right? Yeah. I yeah. have a whole workshop that I teach that's called The Art of Breathing on Purpose. And people think, well, I've been breathing since I was bored. Why do I right. need that? Yeah. But they're amazed to find out that we use less than a quarter of our lung capacity yeah. most days of our life and how that changes everything when we start breathing fully. Yeah, most of us have been breathing wrong as long as somebody's been saying, stand up straight and hold your stomach in. <laughs> that that <laughs> yeah. ruins it right there. So right. we have to rediscover how to do that. Um, so that it certainly is important. So um, Sarah, talk a little bit about how if, if somebody is either realizing that they're going to have to face uh, loss and they kind of want to mm -hmm. think more about that or have already faced loss, what what resources do you have directly and, and where would you direct them to find you? Thanks for letting me share that. I've got a podcast of my own called Grief Unveiled with Sarah Nannan where I talk all kinds of real talk and real truth about grief and living. It's a great place to find me over on iTunes. Um, and I've also got a book. You can find on Amazon, same name, Grief Unveiled, A Widow's Guide to Navigating Your Journey in Life After Loss. But really, I love to connect with people and I love to hear your stories. 
So if you feel inspired to contact me directly, you can just send me an email. It's hello at Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, Nannan, N like Nancy, A-N-N-E-N.com. Um, or you can pop over to my website because I've got a free resource for you there. It's a meditation for peace. And it's a 20-minute digital download that you can just pop into your earbuds and you can use to help you step into that pocket of peace we've all got within us on the days when you feel like you just kind of can't or you're hanging on by your fingernails and you need a lifeline or days when you want to start your day off intentionally. You can just have this little sweet tidbit of tools right in your hip pocket to turn to to help you find some peace in the midst of the chaos. And that's sarahnannan.com. I'm sure you'll have all this in the show notes so that people don't yes. have to remember how many yeah. N's are in my last name. It's so hard when you're you know, probably listening as you're walking or riding <laughs> or something like that. It's very hard to um, remember that. So we do put in the show notes. We'll make sure. But sarahnannan.com, if you're trying to keep that in your memory, that'd be a great place to start. Um, and uh, so... If this has been something that has spoken to you, I would just suggest you check that out, um, especially a free resource, a great way of uh, walking that through and, and figuring out how to find some calm. Sarah, thank you so much for sharing a story that uh, obviously you've told before, but it's still a powerful story for people to hear and a powerful story about uh, grief, the power of grief to um, sometimes be um, a drain for us and yet in reality is a path to healing and a path to something else that we've all got to pay, go through. So thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thanks. You've been listening to the Thriveology podcast. Thank you for listening. If you want more information, visit us at thriveology.com or at thriveologymagazine.com. Remember that Thriveology is spelled T-H-R-I-V-E-O-L-O-G-Y. It's your life. Time to live it.